0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Ernest Shackleton was one of the great polar explorers of the early 20th century, trying twice to reach the South Pole before staging an audacious attempt to cross the entire Antarctic continent. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Ranulph Fines, a fellow polar explorer, about Shackleton's incredible journeys, as well as some of Ranulph's own.
2: So being a polar explorer yourself, how did you bring this perspective to your biography of Ernest Shackleton in terms of both him as a man and his adventures?
3: Well, I I think that Shackleton, Scott and that era, uh, what, now a generation ago, um, so there'll still be people alive who were alive, you know, when they were doing what they're doing. And um, so it's recent history. And we, our group of um, volunteer people who left school, left the army, etc., cetera, and we decided we would do expeditions of a geographical and physical nature like Shackleton and Scott did. Unfortunately, there were no polar orbiting satellites when in the 70s, we did what we did and broke records that they tried to do and had never been broken since. We found that because there were no satellites orbiting poles, there was no GPS or sat-nav or sat-phone. So we had to learn to navigate uh, with a one watch on one wrist on Greenwich time and the other wrist on local time and look where the sun was at that moment, and that would tell us which direction we wanted to go in. Like, if it's South Pole, you want to go due south. The magnetic pole, no good, because you're very near the magnetic pole, both in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Therefore, it's not trustworthy at all. You've got to be accurate. And so you're using the sun, and at some stage, like when we did the first open boat, 3,000, 3,500 miles through the northwest passage above North America frozen, only six weeks of the year when the ice allows you to get through between the cliffs and the ice flows that go all the way north to the North Pole, uh, you've only got six weeks a year. So when my wife planned this whole expedition on her school globe, six-inch globe with a crayon, planning wasn't very precise. When she planned it, basically she had to realise whether we would be able to navigate and get through and she worked hard it would have to be in an open boat. No open boat had ever been through the Northwest Passage. People had taken three years to get through it all in a closed boat, never mind an open one. And we would have to navigate without use of the sun because uh, the sun is in summer when the freezing is unfreezing, there's mist, fog everywhere. So you can't see the sun, you can't trust the magnetic pole how do people get through not that they had in a open boats basically. the only way is to invent something to tell you where the sun was through all the fog. So we put it to British aerospace who made satellites and they gave it to their apprentices in Stevenage and one of them called Zoski invented a little thing which you hold in your hand, you hold it up and you swing on the boat holding on because of the waves to make sure where the sun is within 15 degrees of accuracy. And it worked. We called it the Zumski machine. So we had to invent things because of the satellite lack. But by the 1990s, when we were up there, there were satellites and everything changed and became much easier.
2: And thinking about Shackleton, one of his main driving forces seems that he wanted to be a hero. He wanted to have a life of adventure. When did he decide... I want to go to the seas, I want to go to Antarctica.
3: Well, the first instance of Shackleton's childhood was when he was fooling his seven sisters that he had, with school friends, uh, been in London and uh, there was a monument on Tower Bridge um, showing how heroically they had stopped the Great Flower of London. (laughs) Words to that effect. So being a hero, I think, goes back to his school days in his head. And definitely he wanted the ocean, even though his father wanted him to be a doctor. And uh, he was determined. His father cleverly decided that if he became what they call a boy on a merchant navy ship taking coal or whatever, wherever, uh, it would be so nasty coming from a place like Dulwich School, um, becoming a boy with all those rough seamen, that it, it would put him off. And he went on a a three-year journey and he learned how rough the other folk could be. One of them kicked him slightly, so he lay on the floor and bit the man's ankle. And after a bit, they realized he had uh, a tough side. And yeah, so he was learning in the Merchant Navy how to take ships at the time when there were sails. Now, when the time for the polar expeditions came about, steam was becoming the big thing. And so sailing ships weren't. But when Scott and Shackleton were doing their first expedition round about 1902 to 1910, that sort of thing, um, steam had really taken over and there weren't very many people still around who could understand sailing with ships. And on one of his ships, there were 186 ropes and you had to pull the right one or you could actually sink the ship if you got it wrong. So, you know, when Scott was looking for people to go with him for the first penetration of Antarctica, he chose uh, Shackleton as his third officer. And that's how Shackleton came into the heroic era, as it was called at that time. And that expedition penetrated for the very first time towards the south on this great place called Antarctica, bigger than America, and uh, no Tesco's en route. But they didn't know that. They knew nothing about it. So Scott, with Shackleton and Dr. Wilson tried to go south and they had a most horrific expedition. And on it, Shackleton was learned that he had asthma-type problems and heart problems, particularly any sort of altitude. And uh, so when they got back to their base down there and their ship, the Discovery, uh, Scott had to send him back although most of the people were staying down there to do scientific work and other expeditions for a second year. So when uh, Shackleton arrived back in the UK, the heroism was diminished when Scott wrote his book about that expedition and uh, pointed out that at one point they had to tow Shackleton on one of their sledges. But they all stayed out for another year. So Shackleton, back in the UK did become a hero, because it was him that learnt he could lecture very well indeed, and he made the most of it. But he learnt that he must lead an expedition, not just be the third officer on the expedition. And what he would do, having learnt the hard way the lessons of Antarctica, which can be extreme, as my Shackleton book explains, it is hell. And we have experienced that hell for the last 50 years on expeditions. We have proved that many of the critics of Shackleton, because after he then did his leading the Nimrod expedition and got much further than they had the first time, naturally, because it's always a question of going further and further than your predecessor, he did an amazing expedition to within 97 miles of the South Pole. He then decided if they went on another day, they would die because they'd run out of food on the way back, particularly if they lost their... Uh, incoming ski trail. And um, yeah, so 97 miles, and then he decided better to get back and be what he called a live donkey for his wife and children, rather than a dead lion. It's his favourite expression. And so he done incredibly well. Real heroes welcome uh, when he got back to the UK. Lectured all over the world successfully. But then a little bit later... The news came that Scott and his friends had died on their way back from actually getting to the Pole, and the news that the Norwegians, who later became our main rivals, we call them enemy, to break polar records still in our day, 50 years later. And uh, So when Scott's news that he was dead came back, was during the Great War, and everybody was, you know, in their millions, dying all over Europe. So heroics not for your country, took on a slightly different uh, mode. But Shackleton then said, well, they've reached the Pole. I will cross the whole continent. But the, the, the journeys to the Pole had all been on one side. The other side to the Pole was to unexplored. And he then had two ships. He decided he'd have one ship attack the great frozen continent, although they didn't know it was a continent, really, on one side, but because he might reach the pole, but what about the other side? He'd die of starvation. They decided to take dogs and they reckoned that they had two ships. One ship from the other side could drop depots. So when they, if they got to the pole and down the other side, there would be food depots so they wouldn't starve. So plan two expeditions and two ships, the Endurance and the Aurora, both with teams of people, obviously, who would travel Uh, on that side and unfortunately although he was planning to cross Antarctica his ship sunk before he could be landed and therefore it was a failure before it started and he became absolutely famous not because of succeeding but because of in likely death in the most horrible circumstances and I really mean horrific hell on earth which is what the book points out. And in all my experience of 50 years of pretty good modern hell, I've never read anything or seen anything as horrific. And I've pointed this out. And I think if you do write about hell, it pays if you've been there. And so I I think that in saying that that survival story was the greatest of all and showed what an incredibly brilliant character he had, failure meant nothing to him after they sunk, The ship sunk and they were left on the ice, floating in the middle of nowhere. What happened thereafter was a story absolutely of survival. And I am so impressed now by our fellow Brit, Anglo-Irish, as he was.
2: Mm, Of course. and Before we come on to this horror in greater detail, thinking back now to when Shackleton first goes to Antarctica on his first expedition with Scott, When he sees the polar continent for the first time, when he first sails and sees Antarctica, how do you think he felt at that moment?
3: Well, in his particular case, he was absolutely thrilled because everything heroic was coming into place and he got himself onto the most heroic British expedition of that age. In terms of cold stuff, another Anglo-Irishman at the same time uh, Lawrence of Arabia was doing hot exploration. Shackleton uh, was doing his cold stuff with Sh- with Scott. It didn't, as I said, turned out terribly well because he was sent back in a health situation where they didn't think he should be allowed to go on any more uh, preparatory expeditions into an unknown area, which it was. So um, he came out of it not terribly well, but he made the most of it and learnt the lesson, you've got to be leader. So what did he first think when he got there? Scott actually chose him for the first little landing uh, expedition. That thrilled him. And again, on the first uh, pre-season, when they were wintering with the ship tied up, the Discovery, uh, they practised taking depot rides, and on one of them, he was chosen as leader. So bit by bit, he was really thrilled with the way things were going at first.
2: And when Scott does choose him and Wilson to go with him in an attempt to reach the South Pole, what is it about Shackleton's character that made him stand out for Scott? When you were doing polar expeditions and you were selecting your own crew members to go with you, what qualities did you think were the most important? And did Shackleton have them?
3: In my opinion, Scott, his great friend was Dr. Wilson. And Dr. Wilson was also a great friend of Shackleton, became a great friend. And that uh, um, Wilson persuaded Scott that just to take the two of them, which is what he was planning to do, uh, you ought to have a third party in case one went wrong. And actually... It was Shackleton that went wrong. No fault of his own, but, you know, your health is your health. And so the the answer to your question is, I think, persuasion by Wilson of Scott to take three. And they knew, both of them, that he was physically strong. I know he had lungs and heart problems, but he was physically very strong. Everybody loved him. He was full of good humour, you know. And so Scott pretty readily agreed for doing the first... Crossing of Antarctica from side to side with a single expedition is what we did in the 70s. And at that time, of course, as I say, there were no orbiting satellites. So we were using exactly the same methods of navigation and location finding as they were. And back then in the 70s, I wanted to choose two people who would be on the group with me, like Scott. You know, I know two's a company, three's a crowd, but if one dies, two is vital. And so we had 800 applicants, um, we being the planners, my wife and myself. And we were, he had the governmental Royal Navy and Merchant Navy behind Scott and Shackleton. Uh, You've got to have governmental support. We had uh, the Special Air Service headquarters uh, were behind our expedition. I had previously been thrown out of the Special Air Service for blowing up civilian property and sent back to my own regiment, but the regiment when I applied to them uh, at the territorial headquarters and the regular SAS headquarters near Sloane Square in King's Road, basically they said yes, but the officer who had thrown me out of the SAS seven years earlier was put in charge of Ginny and me nominally and became a great friend actually, but uh, we then Seven years, Ginny and I, spent looking for the right two people. We advertised. Uh, We had um, 800 applicants. We we hadn't got time to look carefully at each one of them. We were actually looking for their motivational uh, strength and their character completely, not their skills. You can not change character. You can teach skills. So what we got out of 800 applicants eventually was only three. Ginny and I argued which were the best, and we only wanted two others. With me would be three, and Ginny would be the base commander in the polar bases. She went to the territorial royal signals in Hammersmith, became better than Marconi at frequency prediction, better than the British Antarctic Survey at antenna theory, and later was um, given the first ever for a woman polar medal by the Queen, and became the first woman in the all-male Arctic club. And only four months ago from now, she had a big Antarctic mountain named after her by the Polar Desk of the Foreign Office. Um, so science was a, a big, big thing, but we're not talking about science, we're talking about the history of it. And so we chose two out of 800 because of their character and because not, they'd not done expeditions One of them, Ollie Shepard, who's still alive, um, had been a beer salesman in London for nine years. And Charlie Burton from South Africa, he's sadly dead, um, had a butcher's business in Cape Town, which went bust. So he joined the British Army. And from there, we selected him. And they were wonderful choices. They succeeded incredibly well, both of them.
2: And thinking now about Shackleton and Scott and Wilson's journey to the South Pole, some historians have tried to suggest a feud was already boiling between Shackleton and Scott. How do you think their relationship was at this point? Because in your book, it seems they just get along very well. They're great friends.
3: Yes, but I allude to the stories by previous biographers Uh, in particular the one that changed uh, the renown of Scott in a downwards direction through character assassination by Roland Huntford in 1979. And that made Shackleton rise up and Scott fall away. So that one writer was able to change the the reputation of Scott, who was a wonderful bloke who died in the most heroic circumstances Shackleton later, uh, with all his expeditions that failed, became um, a great figure. And he is a great figure, but that doesn't mean that Scott was not another great figure in a different sort of heroic manner. The the two men together, if you read um, stuff by people on expeditions like that, they normally uh, hate each other, particularly when there are a lot of people on the same expedition. When there's only two or three of you, it's a bit less. But they write diaries. I write diaries. And I hate the other people on my expedition who I've chosen well. And you get at, you know, you then the next day you love them again. I mean, Mike Stroud, who for 30 years I've done record-breaking expeditions with, um, who studies starvation, he is Southampton University's top stress nutrition professor now. He was the director of the Army Personnel Research Establishment in Farnborough seeing how cold and suffering British soldiers could get. And he basically, uh, on the expeditions, I hated from day to day, and he hated me from day to day. But you don't really hate them. You just hate what's happening to your body, and the gangrene and the frostbite and the teeth falling out and all that sort of stuff. And I found that the very worst expeditions are when you do a solo expedition, which is pretty stupid, and and dangerous anyway in those areas because you've got no one else to hate. And if you've got no one to hate, it, your internal thoughts get even more depressing.
2: You just said in that answer, you don't hate the other person, you hate what's happening to your body. And this is something I wanted to ask you about. A big theme of the book seems to be pain. The pain of scurvy, snow blindness, starvation when you're man hauling. How exactly does physical hardship come into the story and how do you overcome it?
3: It's because if you go out uh, in England for a walk and you forget your umbrella and you do it in winter, you find the effects of the cold, if you've got a long way to get back from the top of Snowdon or something like that, it can be a very, very unpleasant feeling. That is 1%, literally, of what feeling happens if you're doing it for a month and you've got no way of getting to warm, dry clothes or a tent or a way out of this horror and waves, 17 days and nights are coming over you in an open boat. It is just horrific. And you've then got to have somebody who can keep you cheerful and you can realise that if a little bit of hot water every two hours when that one person, I'm talking about Shackleton, is himself suffering horribly and has got heart problems in the background, which he won't let any doctor near because they might say the only person who can't come on the expedition is you, Shackleton. So he didn't let them anywhere near his heart. But, you know, with his lung problems and everything else like that, he was mentally so strong and so able to plan carefully and not take risks unduly, He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, it comes out because of the horrific circumstances that he and his men survived thanks to his character.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: Even turning back where they did, they probably would have died if they missed out on one of the food depots. And you don't have GPS with you to find a loaned flag, a black flag, somewhere in the vast whiteness. So easy to lose depots. And we've, we've lost depots in the past, but we've never been in a situation where death was the alternative within 24 hours.
4: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search
2: about his character, his leadership style seems very, uh, he was so good at buoying up his men and inspiring them and motivating them. Can you tell us a bit more about him as a leader, both for the Nimrod and for his third expedition to the Antarctic?
3: Yeah, on the Nimrod expedition was a lot uh, simpler. He basically only had uh, three people with him. Frank Wilde was a really lovely character. I think with our Uh, choice uh, method, we would have chosen Frank Wilde. Then there were the two doctors, uh, Adams, a nice guy, uh, middle of the road, easy character, and then there was the bitchy Marshall, uh, who was a very difficult character. Now, in the book, I have said where I think uh, Shackleton did make mistakes, and if he took that doctor because he was an expert in scurvy, and that was a very danger, which, of course, they did suffer. And um, a very strong man, and in extremis, uh, very brave, but bitchy as hell. And constantly in his diary, was saying horrible things about Shackleton. And 50 years later, still being rude about him, as was Armitage, who had uh, a position of being the first chap on Discovery, first officer under Scott, really, um, whereas, as I told you, Shackleton was the third officer at that point. Uh, when he wrote a book, Armitage, about that expedition, he didn't say nasty things about the uh, trip of Shackleton, Scott, and Wilson and saying they'd, the, the two, Scott and Shackleton, didn't get on with each other. But 50 years later, he was full of it, you know. which to me is an example of uh, invention, And uh, so that was who he chose on that expedition. On the later expedition, planning to do the first journey across um, Antarctica, he was meticulously preparing on his own ship out of the two ships, but left it in an unconscionable, um, dangerous, badly prepared expedition on the other side, leaving it to Aeneas McIntosh, who incidentally earlier on Nimrod had a big hook on a rope swing across when they were unloading and knocked his eye out, basically. So he was one-eyed and in charge of that crossing. And uh, he, I don't know quite why, because I thought he was a great guy, but he and another chap called Joyce, who was a polar traveller of experience, fell out in a very big way. And a lot of that was because of the inadequacies of the planning And uh, Shackleton was another horror, which I pointed out in the book, for um, Shackleton. Not just that his brother, Shackleton Frank, uh, had been getting publicity at that time for uh, being accused of stealing the Irish crown jewels in Ireland, uh, which didn't do any good to Shackleton looking for money sponsors. But he, Shackleton, had got a name for... uh, not dishonesty, but promising pay and then forgetting to get enough money. And he could make money through lectures, but whenever he'd done a lecture in New Zealand or Australia or the UK or whatever, he would get glory by giving it to the local charity, which didn't help the people who he owed money to. And so that particular second trip was behest with derision and dislike because of that. And it taught us uh, 50 years later, um, never to get into penury. So Jenny decided there is a clever way of doing it. You make a rule. Do not have a bank account. Do not have a checkbook. Never accept anything uh, unless it's free of charge, whether it's equipment or a spare ski uh, or an anchor for the ship or whatever, or a one-million-pound sh- uh, ship. It must be sponsored, everything. Never give any money to anybody at any time for anything. And that way, it took us seven years to get 1,900 sponsors. But we never got into debt.
2: It sounds like it was a very sensible way of doing things, especially seeing the the troubles that Shackleton got into. And just before we come on to Shackleton's attempt to reach the South Pole when he turns back, something I wanted to hear more about is... His rivalry with Scott when they're both planning an expedition to Antarctica to reach the South Pole. And at the time, the Royal Geographical Society and Wilson himself, they do think that Scott has the stronger claim, don't they? And Shackleton does seem to be a bit of an underdog in that situation.
3: Shackleton knew that the RGS preferred Scott. And the RGS man, uh, Markham, was ex-Royal Navy and had done uh, Arctic uh, expeditions earlier on, looking for um, John Franklin, whose 28 men did die, which uh, in the same sort of circumstances that Shackleton's avoided. Um, Yeah, so Markham was Royal Navy through and through, and so was Scott. And Markham helped choose Scott as the leader of that expedition, Therefore, thereafter, and long before Shackleton appeared on the scene, he was a Scot man, and he held that position. So we're talking about uh, a very certain fact there.
2: I'm thinking now about Shackleton's bid to reach the South Pole, when he comes within a hundred nautical miles and then decides to turn back. Why did he make that decision to turn back?
3: Because he correctly knew that mathematically, the food situation would end up with them dead somewhere on the Ross ice shelf on their return journey. Not difficult to work that out. And even turning back where they did, they probably would have died if they missed out on one of the food depots. And you don't have GPS with you to find a loaned flag, a black flag, somewhere in the vast whiteness. So easy to lose depots. And we've we've lost depots in the past, but we've never been in a situation where death was the alternative within 24 hours. But when you've got scurvy and diarrhea, uh, which they had many, many days on that return, dangerous journey, it it was suffering in the extreme, but later on, on the last journey uh, of um, endurance, which we come to later, uh, when he was attempting to do the crossing, he, he realized that the horror of that with uh, that return journey that we're talking about now, was nothing compared with the later one.
2: And you mentioned that last journey of endurance, and that was the next thing that I wanted to ask you about. So Shackleton is beaten to discovering the South Pole, so he thinks of the next record that he can have, which is to cross Antarctica, the continent. As someone who has successfully crossed Antarctica, the continent, Looking at his plan, do you think it would have worked if the Endurance hadn't got trapped in the pack ice?
3: Well, I I wouldn't have known before doing it. But now, having done it with Dr Michael Stroud, we have basically done, which the Guinness Book of Records records, the longest unsupported polar journey. And it was on the exact route that you're talking about, which is what... Um, Shackleton planned to use that route and he knew that his ship coming from the bottom of South America would land him on the unknown side of the continent not the side where he and Scott and Amundsen had penetrated on that side he would be landed at a place called Vachsel Bay next to an ice island called Berkner Island and when critics are keen on saying that if Shackleton's ship had not sunk there and had landed him at Vauxhall Bay as planned for doing the crossing, he would have died anyway. There was no way his mathematics of food against distance, even though he had dogs, which are a great help. They can be eaten for a bit. They can be used for towing stuff uh, in addition to the men. And um, we, when we did from... Berkner by Wachssel. We were dropped off by ski plane, never to do any flying on the journey itself. And the two of us had to tow 485 pounds start load each, 190 pounds heavier than any previous manhaul expedition. And um, we, in the first week, were only doing tiny mileage. We knew that we must do 16 nautical miles every day, not every other day. If we, unlike Chakras and Slot, we had no dogs, but if we had, it would have helped us. So it would have helped him if he'd landed. Now, Mike and I knew that we had to do, because he's clever, um, we had to do 16 nautical miles every day. If we stopped in a day because of dreadful diarrhea or a bad blizzard, like they used to, we would never manage to do 32 miles the following day to catch up. And every day you earn your ration. And every time you don't do it, if, if you give in, then you're going to have to have half rations for several days later on. And that will start the killing process. We knew that towing a heavy weight, when you get up to 5,000 feet above sea level, it starts affecting you badly. The poles around 11,000 feet above sea level which is about the same as 15,000 feet on Mount Everest because at the poles, the air is thinner. So we knew that we would be having to be as tough as Shackleton and his chosen polar expert men. So we basically, I asked him, Director of the Army Personnel Research Establishment, Mike Stroud, what he thought. And he thought that in his day, our day, People are not as tough because of their background and the way they're brought up, et cetera, and modern food as those people were back in Shackleton's day. So Mike and I were not basically mentally and physically as tough as Shackleton and his team. And we take all these things to account when I'm answering your question about how did we reckon his plan was? Was it sensible or not? We proved that without dogs without being as strong as men were in those days, we could, without that, do it, because we reached the pole. At the pole, I did say to Mike, I don't think that we can continue. If we try to get a rescue at the pole, where there's a scientific base uh, of Americans, they might get an aeroplane to remove us alive. If we leave here and set out on the return journey, i.e. the route, that the Scott had died on. Um, you know, we've already used up over half our rations and our fuel to keep warm. Because of it being too heavy, we've thrown away some of our survival clothing. Um, basically, we must stop here. Mike said, no, when we were at the pole, I managed to weigh us for the first time. Remember, he's studying the effects of starvation. And I found that we were starving even more than I had hoped. So we will carry on. So we left the pole and went down the Beardmore Glacier, had big, big problems, were getting very weak, much weaker than on all our previous expeditions. And we just made it to Mount Hope, which is where Scott's Aurora team, some of them died laying the depot at Mount Hope. So that would have been success more easily on Shackleton's plan than it was for us without dogs. So, yeah. Uh, we defend against the critics of Shackleton, his plan could easily have worked.
2: And unfortunately, he didn't get to see if his plan would work as the Endurance, as we have said, was trapped in the pack ice and crushed, which meant Shackleton and his men had to live on ice flows. Can you tell us about this experience? How dangerous would that have been?
3: Very nasty indeed. Um, In 1970s, not Dr Mike Stroud, but uh, Charlie Burton from South Africa, who I was doing the way around Earth vertically. When we'd done Antarctica and two and a half years into the expedition and having waited um, in lockdown in a cardboard hut for eight months of darkness and minus 50 outside, just uh, my wife and Charlie and Ollie and the Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, Then when we eventually got up a year later to the Arctic via the Yukon and the Northwest Passage, which is another story. We had to go 500 miles after waiting another eight months together, by which time it was Charlie and Ginny and me and the Jack Russell Terrier, which incidentally got into the Guinness Book of Records as the only dog ever to have peed on both poles. We eventually got Charlie and I up to the North Pole and became the first humans uh, at having got to both poles by walking. But we still had 1,800 miles to go on the other side and the dangerous summer period when the ice partly melts was ahead, we learned that unlike Ginny's original plan, we would have to carry on, not under our own steam, but floating on an ice flow which must be at least six foot deep because it would break up. And it did break up and it got smaller and smaller and we panicked. Our ship, with a wonderful crew under Anton Baring, who'd done everything till then, tried to get from Spitsbergen, to our flow crashing through the ice. At one point they were stuck for 15 days in a dangerous place north of Spitsbergen but eventually they managed cleverly to get within 22 miles of where our ice flow was moving and we were moving at four miles an hour and we couldn't control which way our flow would go on. We couldn't get off it because it was water on every side and then more ice on every side. So we got an a situation where Britain's top um, polar people, uh, including Sir Vivian Fuchs, the boss of the uh, British Antarctic Survey, they, the committee in London, realised that the two of us would die if we weren't removed before the ice flow was still large enough for a a, a twin otter ski plane from Spitsbergen to remove us. In about a week, it would not be able to land, And we would be in trouble and it would be there for the committee and the Times and all the papers would be full of, you know, viciousness against them. And they sent a radio message to the only person that could speak to us, which was Ginny with Morse Code. And she was at that time in the north of Greenland at a Danish army camp with her radio. And she got this message, as she did from time to time. Um, But it was the first time she ever decided to say that she hadn't received the orders to remove us. So rather like Nelson holding up his telescope and I see no ships. She said, "Uh, I think you are saying that they can carry on. Oh dear, the signal is gone. So she did not uh, ask the ski plane in time to remove Charlie and me. By then we'd been floating for eight and a half months on ice flows. So we know about floating on ice flows. But um, we came out of it just well, luckily And thanks to the brave ship people, none of whom were paid for four years a penny, chief engineers from New Zealand and so on. And so the ship managed to collect us and eventually, just in time before winter came, got us back to Greenwich on the zero meridian, which we'd been following for 52,000 miles without flying. So, yeah, historically, uh, that expedition, which we called the Transglobe Expedition, Ginny's Plan, Uh, did the first ever journey around planet Earth vertically without flying.
2: That's incredible. And thankfully, you survived the ice flows. Shackleton and his crew also survived the ice flows and managed to make it to Elephant Island. And from there, Shackleton and a small group took a boat to South Georgia. How dangerous was that crossing?
3: The chances of survival were absolutely minimal, but the chances of surviving by not trying it were 100%. So when, <laughs> when you've got 100% against 98% or whatever, you take the 98 But he didn't ever take risks when he could avoid them. He was a wonderful bloke to serve under in extreme circumstances. And his personal health, despite not being best, he was always able to fight weakness in his mind and his body, and were even more amazing to encourage the others. You know, the DNA of the other 28, 27 people underneath him, you know, he would always have a cheerful word for everybody, whether they were being soaked by constant waves for 16 days or not. He was just the most remarkable man, Shackleton. And he suffered more in a field of anyway great suffering than anyone I've ever read the story of
2: so he was successful in reaching south georgia for our listeners and he did manage to get the help of whalers and he decided to join the rescue effort himself to to pick up the crew on elephant island but obviously he was suffering so much physically why did he decide to be part of the rescue effort was it just to make sure that his men was all right and to do his duty as a leader
3: No, because by then he had a loyal friend called Frank Wild who'd be with him always basically and he knew that if he left Frank Wild with the survivors on the island, on Elephant Island, Frank Wild would stop mutiny because he was just like Shackleton so that he, Shackleton, could be in charge of getting rescue, and he knew that nothing would stop him. If he was alive, he would be the best person. And he chose Worsley very well because he's a magnificent navigator in incredibly difficult circumstances. I've done a lot of very, very cold weather navigation and I hate it, using, of course, either a sextant, as Worsley did in that boat journey, or a theodolite, which you couldn't use in a boat because the bubble wouldn't ever remain uh, level. Um, And he... Justice Shackleton was amazing in his way. Uh, Worsley was amazing. The one that had the only one that had ever caused absolute mutiny, McNish the carpenter, he put in his boat for the crossing because he knew that he was a wonderful carpenter, even if he was bossy as hell. And he took Vincent with him because Vincent was a bad troublemaker, a good sailor, but a bad troublemaker, and therefore don't leave him on the island behind to cause trouble. Yeah, he chose very, very carefully and selectively. And it worked. And he somehow or other, despite being soaked and shivering in wet clothes, 17 days on occasion, he kept everybody cheerful. In the boat going up and down, up and down, they managed to get the cooker going to make hoosh or some warm drink every so often, particularly some... And if you saw someone who was suffering badly and they were all getting frostbite, uh, he, he would not just say to that particular man you know, dreadfully sorry, I know you're going to have to have your feet amputated. Um, But he would get everyone a drink so it didn't look as if he was just getting that suffering person a drink. And he'd give his last own biscuit, as he did to Frank Wilde on one occasion, even though he desperately wanted that biscuit. His men loved him for it, apart from the two I told you about.
2: And for my final question... How do you think we should remember Shackleton today?
3: I think that he um, was summed up very well indeed by the saying that, uh, by a polar man, if I was to be led on an expedition of horror, I'm not using the exact words, then for, for science, I would use one person. For this, I would use another person. For survival, I would use Shackleton.
0: That was Serrano Fiennes. His book, Shackleton, A Biography, is published by Penguin and available now. As always, you can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again on Friday when Mary Wellesley will be telling us all about the hidden history of medieval manuscript makers.